May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I remember a number of years ago sitting in then Archdeacon, now Bishop Peter Fenty's office at the Diocese of Toronto talking about ordination to the Anglican priesthood. And Bishop Fenty said, well, you've got good ministry experience. I was serving in the CR, uh, the Christian Reformed Church, a Dutch Reformed uh, tradition. And he said, you've got good ministry experience. You're, you've got a good, solid theological education. I'd already finished a master's degree in theology and was then at that time at Wycliffe doing my seminary degree. But he said, there's one thing that I cannot, I cannot say that you are ready for ordination in the Anglican Church yet. And that was a bit disheartening for me because I thought I had checked off all the boxes I knew to and he said your experience of Anglicanism is not the kind of you do not yet have the breadth of experience within Anglicanism that we want of our ordinance and I said well what do you mean he said well you have to realize Anglicanism is a very large tent there's a very large tent. There's all manner of being Anglican. In fact, there's as many ways of being Anglican, I think, as there are Anglicans, or people who identify as being Anglican. And so he said, for you to be prepared to enter into Anglican ministry as a priest, you must be prepared with a breadth of experience of what Anglican theology and Anglican liturgy looks like. So he said, you have a seal of approval, but a tentative one until you can come back to me and say, I have understood the richness of the breadth of Anglicanism, not just in a theoretical sense, but in a lived, experienced, practical sense, then we'll get you ready for ordination. So I took the time in seminary to explore other expressions of Anglicanism. You may have heard me talk about my, uh, uh, the story of Smoky Toms, also known as St. Thomas Huron Street, right downtown in the University of Toronto campus. It's called Smoky Toms, not because it's filled with pipe and cigar smoke, or some sort of speakeasy, but because they are very liberal in their use of incense, so much so that when you walk into the church, you don't always see the altar through a veil of smoke and incense. And so I spent some time learning what that meant for them and their expression. No, I do not have any ulterior motives I don't have any incense in my back pocket. I keep my incense in my office. But anyway, no ulterior motives to this. I spent time researching other churches, like Trinity Streetsville, which is decidedly the complete opposite of St. Thomas Huron Street, where the presiding priest just wears civvies to a service, and that's fine. And so as I was learning the richness of Anglicanism and understanding the richness of its liturgical expression, I understand what Archdeacon, now Bishop Peter Fenty, was encouraging me to understand that Anglicanism is more than just our personal understanding of what it means to be Anglican, but is part of a larger tent of expression. I say this to preface what I'm going to talk about today, and what I'm going to talk about today is Mary. I'm not talking about Mary because I'm a closet Roman Catholic and that I'm trying to usher in something that's foreign to our practice as Anglicans. Not at all. This is very Anglican what I'm about to say and what I'm about to uh, explain. And I was talking to um, one of my brothers who is Roman Catholic and I said, well, 
Tell me about Mary from a Roman Catholic perspective, because the outsider's perspective is, is that you're all obsessed with her and all you do is worship her and she takes the place of Jesus and et cetera, et cetera. He said, no, that's not the case at all. And what he said reminded me of the rule of thumb that we use as Anglicans. And he said, not all, not all Roman Catholics have a particularly strong devotion or attachment to Mary. In fact, a lot of them don't. Some do, some overdo it, but you can't base people who are overdoing things as being the norm for how you evaluate something. And so that reminded me of the Anglican practice or the saying that you've heard me say, and I will repeat again and again, some should, all can, some should, none must. All can, some should, none must. And the same thing is also applicable for Anglican devotion to Mary. You may notice that we have a statue of Mary. She's been here for about a year and a bit, made on a pedestal by Phil Hoekstra. You can't see her because she's out of the way. That's kind of how she likes it. She's not looking to be center stage, but more on that in a moment. But for, me to for you to understand why your priest has such an attachment or devotion to Mary, I need to explain a little bit about my story. And so Judy, if you could put up on the screen about my story, about why. Why is your Anglican priest seem to have such a fixation, some people might say, on Mary? I assure you it's not a fixation, it's a devotion. Can everyone see that picture? Do you know what that is? Oh, it's a rosary, yeah, but where is it? It's in a hospital bed. That picture was taken by me. I don't remember taking it. I don't remember a lot. But you may have heard I spent some time in the hospital in 2019. And no, it wasn't because of COVID, because this is before COVID. And what you have there is the rosary, yes, but you also have the, the buzzer for the nurse, right? And this picture that I don't remember taking, I think encapsulates why Marian devotion is so important in my own discipleship of Jesus Christ and my own life of piety. It's not because I'm some closet Roman Catholic. It's because Mary shows me the way to Jesus. I have to explain this a little bit more. So I have the physical necessity with the clicker that I can call the nurse. Nurse, I need attention. I need your help getting to the bathroom or what other, other things that I would call the nurse for. But the rosary is a spiritual chain and a spiritual anchor for me. I don't remember a lot of my time in the hospital. I know I was there, and I know that Natalie asked me, is there anything I can bring you? And apparently one of the things I said was, bring me my rosary. Now at this point, I was not, like I had a rosary, but it was more of a kind of, well, we'll see what this might do for me. Down the road at some point, it was kind of just a collector's item, you know? Um, my brother had told me about, the, they're called Rugged Rosaries is the company, and they're really, like, they're manly. They're not thin, cheap rosaries that you get that snap really easy. Like, this is paracord, and I thought, oh, okay, this is, a, this is kind of a manly thing, so I'll have it. I never really used it. But for some reason, I asked Natalie to bring this to me. And when you've had a severe stroke, your brain is going a million miles in a million directions trying to land on something, and my brain couldn't land on anything. It was in turmoil. But the one thing that I remember that I was able to do was I could hold on to those beads and I could say the prayers, not the whole 
the whole thing from beginning to end, but maybe two or three at a time. And it became for me in the same way that calling the nurse was a lifeline for physical support, holding on to that rosary was a spiritual lifeline for me. Because it reminded me that prayer is most earnest when we are in times of turmoil and struggle and suffering. It's easy to pray when life is good. It's easy to forget to pray when life is good. But when life in its unexpectedness comes upon us with sudden and, sh and devastating effects, we need something we can hold on to. And for me, it was my rosary. And I got to thinking about this. In the life of Mary and in the life of Jesus, they exemplified what it means to be a people of prayer and praise amidst the sufferings and difficulties of life. Remember the prophecy to Mary from Simeon. A sword shall pierce your own heart. That's why Mary is called Our Lady of Sorrows. She was going to see what was going to happen to her son. God incarnate was going to be ridiculed and maligned and despised and hated and tortured and crucified. And she was going to see all this. We know that Jesus was physically, literally, his heart was stabbed by the soldiers at the side of the cross to kind of see if he was really dead. And it turns out the reason I had my stroke was because I had a, con a birth defect, that I had a hole in my heart. And so later thinking about these things, I thought, who better than Mary and, and Jesus to show me the way of prayer amidst the sorrows and sufferings of life, amidst literally and figuratively having a broken heart. So in the hospital bed, I learned the importance of prayer and developed a deep devotion to Mary. Because there were times in my hospital bed where God seemed absent, where Jesus seemed not even to be present. But Mary allowed me to hold on to Jesus in a way that at least I had something. Because Mary is not about her. Just like John, when he's approached in today's reading, he says, it's not about me. I'm a voice in the wilderness preparing the way. I am someone who's pointing to Jesus. Mary, in her life, points to Jesus because she is the one who bears the fullness of the word of God quite literally in her womb and brings forth the fruit of her womb for a waiting, suffering, and sorrowing world. You see, Mary shows us how to love Jesus. Because who on earth could love Jesus more than his own earthly mother? Parents will know what I'm talking about. No one can love your children more than you. But Mary shows us how to love Jesus. Not just in the good times of life, but in the times of struggling and suffering and sorrow. In the Song of the Magnificat, Mary's Song of Praise, which we will sing together as a congregation in a moment this morning, Mary's Song of Praise that we say every day at evening prayer in our Anglican tradition shows us the pattern of what our praise to God looks like. Mary shows us how to pray the word because we see her time and time again 
drawing attention to her son. From the wedding at Cana where she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you, tells us, do whatever he tells you, to her standing at his cross, standing next to that great sacrifice of sacrifices. Behold the Lamb of God, she says, echoing those words of John, reminding us that in his great suffering he does not leave us or forsake us, but holds us. So Mary exemplifies for us the life of discipleship, of how to love Jesus, how to pray, and how to praise Jesus amidst all the circumstances of life, especially in those dark and uncertain times. In all things, God is the operator. God operates. God is the one who's in control and sets all things in motion. We are the co-operators. We can find ourselves working at odds with what God is doing, or we can find ourselves working with God in what God is doing. And this is where Mary stands as our great exemplar. Be it so done unto me according to your word. This is the same prayer that Mary has given to all of us when we are facing difficulties and struggles in life. Not with passive resignation, not with anger, but with firm and sure hope that God will bring light and life even out of darkness and death. She teaches us to say, let it be so according to your word. So Mary is for everyone. That doesn't mean that you have to have a great a devotion to her as others do. But maybe Mary is inviting you, especially in this time of Advent, as we approach the literally the darkest time of the year, as we approach again an, an extended time of uncertainty with this COVID thing, Mary is standing there beckoning you to show you the way of how to ponder these words of God that are called to dwell within us. All can, some should, none must. But let us follow the example of Mary and all the saints in turning our attention to the great love and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Because that's what she's all about, and that's what we as the people of God are called to be all about. Amen.